to the latest edition of the audible presented by trader joe's this is the audible extra Stu and i are taping this just a day after the early signing period and pretty much about 80 to 85 percent of the top recruits are already signed now as we're doing this and in a few minutes we're going to be joined by our guest mario cristobal from oregon who once again for the second year in a row uh, got arguably the nation's top recruit and certainly the best player in the state of California to commit and sign with the Ducks. And we'll talk to Mario in a couple of minutes. But Stu, let's get some thoughts on your takeaways from signing day. Doesn't it feel like early signing day has kind of taken away a lot of the fun of it? Like when it was just that one day in February, I feel like all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, like, did we see any announcements Wednesday? I mean, first of all, we didn't see hardly any announcements because most kids have already committed. But we didn't see any, you know, Isaiah Crowell bringing his dog, bringing a, a bulldog to the ceremony or um, Landon Collins' mom crying because he picked the wrong school. Like, what? it's just now it's just like all um, who can have the most creative announcements on social media. Yeah, I thought what we saw a couple of t- more more maybe grown-up moments. It was Emmett Smith, the legendary Cowboys runner who went to Florida, making very, uh, I think, a poignant statement about his son who opted to sign with Stanford as opposed to picking the, the Florida hat and going his own path. And I thought that was celebrated. And just from watching it when it happened, it was a really cool moment. Uh, in terms of the different ways to announce your commitment, Marcus Dumerville, who comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, the prep powerhouse in Florida, he basically announced his decision to go to LSU by putting on a purple bow tie, which is a little bit of a different twist. Uh, we did see Justin Flo, who who uh, you know kind of touched a couple hats before he picked up the Oregon hat. He's the the stud linebacker from Southern California, but yeah, I I'd agree with you. I think just because we really don't have a month of run up of uninterrupted. Uh, you know, we're coming off the award circuit, we're coming off the conference play, uh, conference title games. There's just a lot of stuff that's going on in the middle of early, you know, the early signing period now. Um, what other stuff caught your eye from what you saw yesterday? So Clemson, when we first talked about this back in the summer, Clemson is, is signing the number one class, which if you're a, you know, if you're just kind of casual college football observer, you'd be like, well, of course Clemson should sign the number one class. They've won to the last three national titles. But as we know, um, this is the this is the first time they've had this kind of class. It's like all of a sudden their recruiting rankings are starting to match their on-field rankings. And I even saw where you know, Rich Get Richer, they pick up a commitment over the weekend from Trenton Simpson. He's the number 29 player, linebacker, 29 player in the country from Charlotte. And as a result, they just kind of ran out of room for Justin Flo, who was the top five player who uh, who was making the biggest announcement of signing day. Well, I think one of the things that's changed with them is they've become more of a national program. Uh, I ran into Woody McCorvey, who's been Dabo's right-hand man for a while, a year ago at the Combine, and we talked about some of the uh, subtle changes. But it wasn't just, hey, we're recruiting 
in places we can drive to now. They had gone deep into into California. DJ Uyangalele, who's the top quarterback recruit, a lot of people think in the country. He's from Long Beach. They have recruited other kids from pretty far away. Certainly, they've had some success in Miami uh, it, last year, and so I think that's that's changed somewhat for them. Um, but I don't think there was any real shockers. I, I do want to bring this up to you, and I saw you had tweeted about it yesterday. One of the more noteworthy things that that happened early in the day was Tom Herman had a bad gaff. Uh, he got caught basically throwing a double bird up uh, in the direction of the cameras, and that on made Long the rounds on social media. Yeah, on Longhorn Network. And he had he apologized for it right out of the gate. Um if you're a Texas fan, obviously this has been a disappointing year after beating Georgia in the Sugar Bowl, and then you sit there and have a five-loss season, and then this happens. Look, I think if this happens a year ago and they're playing in a Sugar Bowl, I, I'm not. I think probably Texas fans would give this more of a pass. But it's not the first time Tom has had what I think a lot of people would call a very immature moment in the spotlight. What's your take on this? As, as this is the you know kind of the latest thing where you just kind of roll your eyes at. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Texas fans are offended by it all that much, or necessarily even care about it. But it is another, you know, like the Drew Lock mocking Drew Lock uh, during that bowl game a couple years ago. It just seems like Tom Herman's good for like one, at least one kind of frat boy moment every year. And you know how it is. If you're winning, they'll defend just about anything. And when you go seven and five and have to fire both your coordinators. Your, your act wears thin. So probably not something that he necessarily needed to happen on signing day. They signed a good class. I don't think it was considered an all-timer by any means. Uh, I just think whether yesterday happened or not is not going to change Texas fans' opinions. They're ticked. Uh, they went in the, the team went in the wrong direction this year. Sam Ellinger went in the wrong direction. Um, you know, they are not... We became so used to Mac Brown having his pick of whoever he wanted in the state of Texas and signing a top five class every year. Again, Texas is doing well, but they're not dominating like they used to in recruiting. If anything, they and Texas A&M kind of seems like they kind of um, trade places or they're, they're both ranked right around the same place every year. Was there anything that surprised you from from just kind of jumping in on it and seeing it? And you're like, whoa, this because obviously a lot of people have have you know, made a big deal. And I think rightly so of how low ranked this USC class is, but I don't think it's shocking considering Clay Helton's been on the hot seat for basically the last two and a half years. Anything else though, that kind of stood out to you just kind of, as you glanced at it? I mean, the USC thing is, even though like it didn't happen overnight, the idea that USC, a, a program that has signed many number one ranked classes or number two ranked classes is in the seventies is ranked around where Bowling Green is. It's just nuts. And but what? But I'm also like, well, what do you expect uh, when when the coach when nobody knows for a full year whether the coach is actually most people assume for a full year the coach wouldn't be coming back. Who's going to commit to that school? So, um, you know, I think we're about to have Mario Cristobal on and talk about his class. It's a good class. I'm not going to knock it. But in general, I think you know I'm a big believer, as many are, that if you want to win the national championship, you got to sign top ten classes. And the highest-ranked Pac-12 class on 247 is Washington at number 14. Oregon's number 16. It's just yet another example where the Pac-12 seems like they're not playing in the same sport 
as the Clemsons and Alabamas and Ohio States and LSUs. They're, but you don't have to sign one every year, Stu. You don't have to I sign mean, one every year, but you have to Because Clemson, Clemson had classes that were part of the nucleus of that team last year that were not top 10 classes. I mean, I'll say this, and obviously we're going to have Mario on. He does. It's not like I'm, I'm saying this for his benefit, but they – if you look at the talent they've amassed now on the defensive side of the ball, I think it matches up with anybody. I mean, I really do. Uh, now, do they have four years of this? No, they don't. But in terms of that, just on paper, I mean, I think they can play with anybody at this point. I know they got to replace a bunch of offensive linemen and a really good quarterback. But I think there are places where grad transfers come in and can fill in gaps and certainly things like that. I mean, I think they're a team to really keep an eye on at this point. Well, Oregon, for one, is definitely trending in the right direction. And Mario has brought um, that Alabama-like recruiting mentality, and they were a top-10 class last year. And I think the stat is that all but one national champion this uh, century has averaged a top-10 recruiting class, top-10 in recruiting in the in the four years leading up to it. So if you can do that, you're, you're right in the mix with, with those programs. But... I don't know, when you look at those rankings, it just kind of looks a lot like the uh, CFP rankings or the AP rankings often look these days in terms of the Pac-12 being on the outside looking in. Uh, One other one I wanted to bring up, noteworthy one I thought, um, you know, when Mike Loxley was hired at Maryland, and some people were like, why are you hiring the guy who had that abysmal run as New Mexico's head coach? And, well, he's a great recruiter. He's able to keep kids at home. Uh, I mean, was that the most notable flip of the day maybe on uh, on signing day? They got Rakeem Jarrett, receiver from Washington, D.C., five-star receiver, uh, had been committed to LSU, flips to Maryland. And because of that, uh, Maryland ended up almost in the top 25, number six class in the Big Ten. That's what he was hired to do. Yeah, I, look, he's he's gotten some big players over the years. This is a big addition. I think it's important that it's local because look, there's a lot of really good players that ended up go, that ended leaving that DMV area to go to the other places. So I think it helps. I mean, it's a, it's a good sign. They're going to have to have a lot more than just than just this one though, certainly to get some momentum after you know a very up and down debut season there. Uh, Let's wrap up and and quickly get into some of the bowl picks because obviously there's a lot of them. Why don't we just hit on a few of the early ones that are going to happen before our next podcast? Yeah, so bowl season starts Friday with the Bahamas Bowl. That would be Will Healy bringing Charlotte in its first ever bowl game up against Buffalo. Um, Nothing against Charlotte and the great season they had, but I'm not sure they're quite there yet. Buffalo has been winning year in and year out recently. Um, I went Buffalo. So Buffalo is a six and a half point favorite. I have them covering uh, Buffalo 31 21. Are you serious? I haven't even looked at your picks. You have 31 21. What do you have? I have 31 21. Oh, that's so bizarre. We don't look at one thing when we have the same score in like a LSU Alabama game, but Buffalo Charlotte. Yeah. So my rationale on this is, is. Really, Lance Leipold, who's the head coach at uh, at Buffalo, was he won six Division three national titles. I think the extensive experience that that staff has, I think that will help them in the postseason here. Uh, I do think they're pretty talented relative to this get matchup. So that's my rationale. Uh, by chance in the Frisco Bowl, do you have Utah State winning by 17? 
Oh, I went bigger than that. And Jordan Love is going to play uh, his last game before turning uh, pro. No, I went um, 52-24, Utah State. All right, so the spread is only seven. Uh, I have Utah State winning 34-17. Jordan Love had a terrific season in 2018. Coaching change happened really up and down year. He's leaving early for the NFL draft. I think he will be the best player on the field and will make a uh, – end with a flourish there so i like the aggies to uh to roll uh let me just make a quick disclaimer slash observation picking bowl games is much more of a throwing darts exercise than in the regular season you often see results that have no seem like they are like not even remotely connected to during the season and so is utah i have no idea if utah state's going to win 52 24 but that is the kind of score you sometimes see in bowl season um Sometimes it's it's you know a team that was a you didn't expect to win not only wins but wins by twenty five or thirty or something like that so um, and that's definitely true with those group of five games where let's be honest neither of us has watched these teams extensively this season and we're we're kind of guessing um, let's skip over to the um, you know it's a, actually a pretty good matchup the Boca Raton Bowl you've got a ten win SMU team against a ten win. FAU team. Granted, FAU has lost their coach, Lane Kiffin. Who you got? Uh, I have SMU running away with this 35-17. to 17. I think when you have a coaching transition, it is very significant, especially at a place like that. So I got the Mustangs, who had a really good year under Sonny Dykes, uh, finishing off with a flourish. I've got SMU 48-27. I might not have picked a blowout like this if Lane was still there. I just wonder, between losing their coach and playing a quote-unquote bowl game on their home field, how much FAU is going to be um, dialed in for this one. Uh, let's wrap up with the, the probably, you know, I think we would both agree this is the best bowl game of opening weekend, Las Vegas Bowl, Boise State against Washington. Little surprised, Washington is a three-and-a-half-point favorite even after a kind of disappointing 7-5 and five season, and Boise State is the 12-1 and one Mountain West champ, but obviously it's also... Uh, this will be a notable game and that is Chris Peterson's last game. He's stepping down and of course he's facing his former team. What do you have? Uh, I have Washington winning 20 to 14. I think there's a ton of overlap here between staffs. Boise has obviously played, had a really good history in bowl games. I remember a couple of years ago, they just whipped uh, Oregon from the PAC 12, but I don't see Washington losing on Chris Peterson's last game. I think they will find a way to win. And I think this, I think this is a pretty talented Washington team. They've been pretty up and down, but I like them winning, like I said, 20 to 14 to cover. Again, pretty similar. Uh, pretty similar in all these picks. I've got Washington 26 21. Um, I'm sure we're going to be hearing now, no, we're not giving Boise State the proper respect. I think they're a good team. In fact, this was the first um, crazy, believe it or not, first team since they joined the Mountain West in 2011 to actually go undefeated in Mountain West play. Uh, and that's despite losing their first two quarterbacks. They're down to Jalen Henderson, the third stringer. So maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I think both of us are counting on Washington basically playing to its potential for once. I also think it's an important game for Jacob Eason, you know, who has a, a decision to make here, whether to come out or not. I think a lot of people expect that he will, but some people think he could really benefit from coming back for another year. He had a good season. He could probably do even better. So uh, if this isn't, in fact, the last game he's going to put on tape before uh, for the NFL scouts, he would uh, definitely uh, 
definitely benefit from having a big game against a top 20 Boise State team. All right. Let's get to our interview. And now we're pleased to be joined by our guest today. He is Mario Cristobal, coming off a Pac-12 title. And also, once again, his class made a big splash on signing day, uh, especially going into California, getting the best player and a guy. A lot of people think he's the best linebacker to come out of the West Coast in over a decade. That's Justin Flo. Uh, and joining us is Mario Cristobal. Mario, thanks for coming on the Audible today. I appreciate you guys having me. All right, so let's let's start with 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 Justin Flo. You also get Noah Sewell, who a lot of people think is probably those are the two best linebackers in this whole recruiting class. You added to a defense last year. You got Kayvon Thibodeau, the top D lineman in that recruiting class. I mean, you obviously played and coached at Miami. You were on Nick Saban's staff at Alabama, around a lot of a lot of teams. What do you think you've built now in terms of the it's just the personnel on defense as it relates to having a real shot to be a team that can win a national title? Well, you know, it's been a, a huge goal of ours from the beginning to establish ourselves as a physically imposing team at all levels, making sure that the line of scrimmage can knock you back and control that line of scrimmage, making sure the linebackers are knockback tacklers, guys that can play in space but could thump it up inside, and guys on the back end that are very versatile to play man coverage, press, and off, and are also versatile enough to, to play nickel, to play center field, and, and play off the hashes. And we felt uh, that we really kind of got the final pieces to be able to do that with our defense, especially in the direction of Coach Avalos and Coach Hayward and then, um, you know, Salavea and Wilson and Dante Williams. I mean, um, I felt like those pieces came into place. And I feel the same way about the offensive side. So just really pleased with the progress of the program, but also knowing that where we want to get to, we, we got to keep our foot on the gas. I'm curious when you recruit kids now, I mean, obviously this is your program now. It's a much different Oregon program than it was uh, under Chip Kelly, under Mark Helfrich and Willie Taggart. Um, But are these kids who are, you know, 17, 18 years old, like, do they, does does their awareness of Oregon go back to those teams? Like, do they they think of Oregon? Do they still think of uh, Michael James and Marcus Mariota? Or is this mostly about what you've established there uh, in your, in your first couple of years? Oh, I think they all remember those days. I mean, that's not too far back now. I mean, Oregon's playing in a title, what, four years ago, five years ago? Um, and so they know all those guys. They watched, they played with them on the, uh, you know, on those computer games. And a lot of these guys are members of the IE Ducks uh, when they were coming up in Southern California. So that's strong. And I think they also see um, so many great players coming this way. And so many of these players are having instant impacts. You know, it's um, it's like, the player development that we um, that the success we're having with player development shows on shows up on game day, and uh, in so many different ways. You know, we're in the Coliseum, and all of a sudden, Mikel Wright's taking a kickoff back 100 yards for a touchdown. You know, we're in the in the championship game, and, and Mace Funa and Kayvon Thibodeau are just wreaking havoc on the opponent's quarterback and living in the backfield. So, and it, again, it, the examples go on and on and on. So. I think it's a testament to both things, the history and also uh, most recent history. Let me add, uh, read something to you. This is from my colleague, Matt Leinert, obviously Heisman Trophy winning quarterback at USC. This is what he tweeted not long after the Justin Flow announcement. Oregon is the new USC in recruiting on the West Coast. Back in my day, no one dared to recruit SoCal. Now it's open season and Oregon is hunting! Exclamation point. All right, so you mentioned a couple of those kids who are Southern California kids who are already 
who are already having success, you know, in the beginnings of their career there, no one, and I would argue, has benefited more from USC being down than the Oregon Ducks. So you come in here, you guys talk to these kids, you talk to their parents, you talk to their coaches. Um, what is the dynamic like for for what you're able to sell, but also um, maybe the vibe you get from kids as it relates to being open to feeling like, hey, I grew up as a USC fan, but I want to go somewhere else now. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for Matt and certainly the USC program, as well as I think the, the high school coaching in California, the West Coast, and, and then, of course, we spend so much time in Southern California. I think that's elite coaching that's going on there. And the population itself just is going to dictate the fact that there's going to, they're going to be great players. I mean, by the truckload down there. So we've invested heavily in there. And, you know, a lot of those guys, they, they want to be at a place that's completely, I mean, utterly and completely devoted and invest in the student athlete. That's far enough away from home. So you're going away for, for your college days, but close enough to hop on a quick flight or just drive back home and be able to spend time around family. And that's what, that's what's being provided for them. And now, you know, in our second year, we've been here now two years together. Um, all that is validated with a conference championship, you know, a, a Rose Bowl berth and, and really close to even reaching higher levels in a short amount of time. So I think all those things combined with the fact that like our players truly love being here, like they, the amount of time that they spend together, the activities and the professional development opportunities we provide for them has created a place in the culture that you know, we believe is second to none. So the players themselves sell it to their former teammates back home. And it just seems that now, I think we, you know, if I'm not mistaken, we'll have 50 players from California on our roster by the end of, um, by the end of this recruiting cycle. It just, now it's just kind of, you know, selling itself. Well, you guys are certainly getting your share of the top players in California. Uh, but if you look at the lists, you know, this is the, the two, four, seven list of the top recruits. I mean, not a lot of other Pac-12 teams are necessarily having that success right now. You look and you see the Alabama logo, the Clemson logo, the Georgia logo, the Ohio State logo. Um, and much has been made, obviously, of the, the Pac-12 missing the playoffs several years in a row. Um, what does the conference have to do to kind of get back to the days when kids in California wanted to, wanted to stay west and not necessarily, you know, go across the country to feel like they've got a shot at contending? Well, I think we're providing that for them. You know, I think uh, it starts with what do you bring in? What's your administration doing? I mean, to me, look at the the financials, right, of each institution. And when you look at Oregon, Oregon's blowing it out of the water in terms of facilities, resources, investment in the student athlete. And then the administration, again, it's, yeah, I mean, when, you're, when your AD serves as a chair of the CFP committee, right, it, it kind of it speaks volumes of the level of professionalism that's in the building and the commitment to it. So then you add a coaching staff and a regiment that really brings in a blueprint that has been proven over long periods of time. And again, a lot of it, of course, we took from the Alabamas and during the real, you know, the old days at Miami back in the eighties and nineties under Jimmy Johnson and Dennis Erickson. And, and you bring in all these awesome coaches and they bring in this these, this caliber of athlete in here. All of a sudden, you're you're scratching. You're knocking on the door of the college football playoff, and you're winning your conference with a young football team. I think that right there is speaking volumes of the direction of it, and that's what's going to help us and in turn the conference take the next step and becoming a more prominent fixture in the top ten, top five teams in the country year in and year out. 
having coached in the in the South and the Deep South and and basically on top of college football uh, in the past, there's been a lot of people who said, look. There's just not enough big people on the West Coast, and and they point to that as a reason why the Pac-12 has really struggled. What do you make of that about as if there's just not enough players on the West Coast to produce a national championship caliber team? I, I disagree with that. I disagree completely. You know, it's been done before, and, you know, we feel like we're, we're – we're, progressing towards a goal of being a you know in that conversation year in and year out and you know if if for whatever if it's a down year in your area well you got to go find them wherever they're at right I mean I um you know I coach in all these conferences and I I feel like we came out this way and all of a sudden you know the Outland Trophy winner comes from the University of Oregon right the Joe Moore finalist is you know you know LSU won today congratulations to them um but we're again our offensive line was in that that final four as well so that blueprint is being you know has become a reality out here and i look at a lot of teams you know down south becoming more spread like and open setish right i mean they're starting to get more athletes on the field spread it out become less of a you know knock your back mash up at the line of scrimmage and you know so forth so i i think this is moving west in a hurry i think some of the happenings of yesterday's signing day shows that in terms of us and what we're doing so I mean, this thing, the, the college football landscape is changing, I believe, in our favor. And we're going to keep pressing and keeping our foot on the gas until we achieve, you know, the level that we're trying to get to. Having said that, how how much more difficult would that be if USC was still kind of running at the level? Maybe it was under the Pete Carroll days where USC was the team that a lot of people looked at as like the powerhouse on the West Coast. It's clearly not been that. And it's not a knock on Clay Helton. It's not... But it's that's a reality now. I mean, can you have both of those um, going? Or obviously, it's made it easier for you to do this. But like, is it possible to have both if USC is operating as a top five program? Well, I, I just think that that's a you know a great pro a storied program. So I think recruiting, I think every year it's difficult. And I, I remember being at FIU and going, man, it's hard to get players. And then I remember being in Alabama and going, man, it's hard to get players. So it's all every single year signing day. And, and as signing day approaches, you find yourself saying, man, it, it still is hard. It still is difficult because it's got to be the, one of the most competitive industries in the country. Right. I mean, in the NFL, you sit back and you draft there. That's those are the rules in college football. You got to go out and you got to you know, prove yourself and recruit and, and bring home the right caliber of human being and student athlete. So I don't, uh, I really don't judge, you know, programs and, and where some people might perceive they are, or they aren't. I think all these programs are excellent. I think they all have great things to sell Our, you know, we have a very um, strict policy with our guys. We don't negative recruit. And, and if we tell our staff, if someone negative recruits against you, don't complain about it. Don't make a big deal about it. Just continue to sell your program and just go to work. And I think because of that, I think again, the, I think it's just going to keep progressing, but I don't, I don't see anything being helped or hurt by, you know, the, the status of any program at the conference. Well, we want to, even though this was a signing day heavy interview, we want, before you go, we want to ask you about the Rose Bowl, uh, obviously a huge matchup against Wisconsin. First of all, pardon me for not knowing this. Have you coached in a Rose Bowl before? I have never, ever coached or been to a Rose Bowl. So 
like the excitement over here is through the roof. It's like one of gratitude, one of, Hey, we earned this thing. What an opportunity. These seniors went four and eight, you know, the year that we got here, the previous year, they had gone four and eight. And these guys just, I mean, come on, man. And, and, you know, Bruce, I mean, it's our, our regiment and our structure is demanding now. It's, it's about as, as subtle as a body slam, right? I mean, this is, you have to buy into it. You have to work at it. And they did. And all of a sudden they're going to the Rose Bowl. And, um, but the goal has to be more than just getting there. And our guys understand that. And, and to achieve our goal, brother, we got to be at our best because Wisconsin is an excellent football team that is very talented and very disciplined and very tough. So, so uh, the excitement around here is crazy right now. I mean, first of all, you're going to get the chills the first time you walk out on that field and see the, the freshly painted end zone in Oregon. And uh, it's just there's nothing like it um, in terms of Wisconsin. I mean, like you said at the beginning of this interview, you, your whole goal there is to turn Oregon into a program people think of as as physical, um, as tough. Wisconsin has been a, a poster for that now for a couple decades. Um, you know, what do you like about this matchup? Well, I love the fact that, in our opinion, it's the ultimate test because they're big, they're physical, they're long, they're rangy, they're disciplined, they get downhill, they knock you back on both lines of scrimmage. They play with unbelievable technique and fundamentals. They all have, you know, they come off the ball with flat backs, they get their hands inside, they get their feet in the ground. Um, they're relentless in terms of their, the way they try to bring pressure at the quarterback, they try to isolate your backs and bring those big old linebackers, shoot them in the A-gaps, cross blitz them. Uh, Mike and Buck Plugs, you know, they try to really just knock back your backs, eat them up with protection, zone droppers, get underneath your throws, take away the quick game. Um, and then offensively, they it's not that they mash you up, it's that they knock you off the ball. They're extremely powerful and athletic. Uh, obviously, they, they run the ball like very few people have in this past decade. They're big uh, at tight end and athletic as well. They present problems with their play-action passes and stretch the field with it. I could go on and on, guys. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm sitting here on two shots of Cuban coffee and, and going through all my uh, my film and all my notes, so I'm just rattling off stuff for you. But, no, this is a great challenge and a great opportunity, and we have to be at our very best. We look forward to that game. Uh, it does. It seems a long ways away still to me, but maybe not if you're the one preparing for it. Maybe it feels like it's fast approaching. Um, and congratulations, obviously, on uh, another great recruiting class. Guys, I appreciate it. We are we're blessed to have these guys. I mean, we are we're like just chomping at the bit to get them on campus. Thirteen guys will be on campus early, which is a great number um, to take part in spring ball and the fourth quarter program, winter conditioning. So we're looking forward to, to continuing to elevate uh, the standard here at Oregon. Hey, just lastly, how big is Noah Sewell? Actually, we know his brother is massive. How big is he? He is a massive guy. He's just, I think he's at 6'3". I know he's been measured 6'2", 6'2 plus. He's 260 pounds and just, I remember coaching him at the All-Poly Camp in Utah when he was a sophomore. And they, they break out into groups and then into teams and you get to run plays against each other. And he's like, I'm a Wildcat quarterback. I want to do this. I want to do this. I'm like, all right. So they put him at Wildcat port quarterback and they run quarterback power. And this, I mean, it's a plus two, man. They've got a safety in the box. It's extra. they got the backside linebacker plused over. Noah takes the ball, follows his guard. Guard whiffs. Noah hurdles the Mike linebacker. I mean, like, just launches himself at 260 pounds and doesn't break stride, lands, and just runs for a 25-yard touchdown. And it's like, all right, maybe we ought to recruit him too now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> spectacular, spectacular. I've again never seen a guy like him. I think uh, I think we have by far the best linebacker class in the country, maybe one of the best in the last I don't know how many years. I've never seen one like it between Jackson Leduc, between Justin Flo, Noah Sewell. I could go on and on and on and rave about these guys, but they are off the charts and can't wait to, for them to get here. All right, Mario, we appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure I will see you at the Rose Bowl uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, happy holidays. Yes, sir, guys. Have a great holiday season as well. See you out there, Bruce. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic.